Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Jonathan Moore, training manager of Tai Nha Mion, a care home located in Scotland. Jonathan, hello. Hi there, how are you doing? Very well. Thank you for coming on the program today. Now, normally, uh, we like to talk exclusively about leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, how has this affected your operations? Um, well, as you can imagine, it's had quite a significant impact on the way that we do our day-to-day running of the business. Um, normally, we, we focus um, on activities in the care home, um, and people are free to come and go as they please. The, the home and the ground is open to everyone. Um, but during the, obviously the lockdown period, the majority of our residents were socially distanced from each other, um, and obviously our staff members as well were socially distanced from not just uh, mm. their own families, but obviously our own team members as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but things c- could not have been more different. I wouldn't be remiss as to, as to thinking that at one point during lockdown that it was more akin to running a prison than it was running a care home. <laughs> Um, especially when we had some positive cases, um, we had right. to make sure that residents were, were completely isolated from each other. Uh, obviously, the risk of infection was was extremely high. Now, when it comes to managing that risk of infection within uh, the establishment, how is that achieved? Well, we um, we've obviously uh, taken uh, on board guidance that was coming through, obviously from public health and from the, uh, the government as well. However, we did find that it was. Uh, a little bit slow and forthcoming at times, and also it was a little bit confusing. We were getting uh, told many different things from many different people all at once. And we actually um, had an action plan in place quite a few weeks before the official lockdown started, um, and we went on a quite uh, quite restrict visitation from, uh, I think it was the 13th of March we started, where we were only allowing one uh, visitor per resident per week uh, by appointment only. Mm-hmm. Then after that, things started to change on I mean, almost a daily basis. Um, we had a like, we had an action plan in place, but that kind of went out the window almost immediately. Um, it became apparent that we weren't going to manage to achieve most of the stuff, especially around things like PPE. Mm-hmm. Um, when we went into official lockdown at the same time as the government, um, we'd already been wearing our uh, things like face masks um, for every staff member every day. Um, we'd also put a risk assessment in place where we split our business in two. So that if one part of the business was affected by COVID, the other part we could try and keep completely clear, which uh, which worked to an extent. Um, but then after that, we were literally we were getting things through on an almost daily basis um, regarding PPE, infection control, distancing, and all that sort of stuff. So we kind of had to do things on the fly um, and be as flexible as we possibly could. Um, we had meetings pretty much every day with senior members of staff to see what was happening in the, in the building anything we could do to improve it. But we're also um, joining on webinars with Scottish Care, who put on a webinar twice a week for us, where we could also sort of keep up to date with everything that was happening across in the, in the wider area too, which was really, really quite helpful, um, given the level of confusion that we had initially with uh, all the information getting passed on from all different government bodies. Do you feel that there's going to be a difficulty in the future obtaining the supplies that you need to run the care home? Um, well, we were lucky that we'd, we'd start... Because we saw things coming a little bit earlier, we'd already started stockpiling, and we generally keep um, quite a, a decent stock of PPE on hand for, for things like that have happened in the past, like SARS. Um, so we've always got something there in case we need it. But we didn't have, obviously, was uh, face masks, uh, and our surgical ones or FP3 masks and gowns and things like that too. 
Uh, I, I don't think, I think things are getting back normal enough now that we, we should be able to order enough things in like face masks. That seems to have settled down a little bit. But we um, we still have concerns about um, being able to get enough things like FPC masks and hospital gowns and things like that too. And we're not entirely sure what the situation on that is. Um, we do know that obviously there was a few English suppliers who weren't providing stock to Scottish care homes when um, lockdown started and that kind of really affected us. And we had to get quite um, creative with the PPE we were using. Um, we had to source, we sourced things like um, 600 disposable ponchos, um, decorator suits and things like that because we couldn't get hold of anything else that we needed for, for um, dealing with positive cases of coronavirus. Um, and I know that um, the guidance stated that for positive cases of coronavirus that uh, a face shield, a face mask, gloves and an apron were sufficient, but it didn't really feel sufficient when you were actually dealing with it. So we were actually going with the... Um, the PPE that we were using in hospitals, so we would be fully gowned up with our FP3 face masks and etc. on as well. Mm. And that was that was mainly because it wasn't so much for the staff dealing with the positive cases. I mean, uh, our staff would we would have gone in and helped our residents with more PPE if we had to, if it got to that. However, when you're in a room with only that PPE on, it's more the fear of then coming out that room with so much of your body exposed and then passing the virus on to other people, which was our main concern. It was it was quite terrifying at the time. I would imagine so. Uh, it is a very difficult situation and one uh, which requires uh, very succinct decision-making skills, which bridges us nicely onto the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? And to me, a leader is somebody who is able to lead a team by example, and a leader doesn't necessarily have to be someone who's in a management position. A leader could be anybody from a member of staff onwards. Um, I was actually trained in leadership with, with uh, KFC. And we used uh, 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 the CEO of your restaurants at the time, David Novak. He gave all our managers a book called Taking People With You. And it was all about uh, developing your own leadership style and how to lead a team. And uh, I've, I've taken a lot from that over the years. I've, I've kept following on that philosophy for, for quite a while. Um, a lot of it is to do with, obviously, uh, positive energy. And there's a huge amount of recognition there as well. I think leading a team um, is impossible unless you recognise the people that you're working with, both peers and people who may be working uh, below you. Um, and uh, another important part of that as well is that if somebody in your team has a great idea, it's important to, to, shout, about, to shout it out to the world and let uh, everybody know that it was that person's idea. I mean, it wasn't yours, so you're not taking credit for it. Mm-hmm. Um, if some, one of your staff members has something that changes your business, they should be the person that's getting the recognition and leading that development forward. So it's really making uh, your staff feel as though they are not just employees, but stakeholders. Exactly, yes. What is yeah, the no most... One... Please, go ahead. Uh, that's the way to say that nobody can, can run a team by themselves. Everyone has to have people around you who that you can lean on and you can support with, but also gain feedback from as well. And obviously, most of us have in the business have far more staff members than we have managers. So it's important to get their insight as well. What is the most difficult part of leadership within a business environment? Um, I think a lot of the time that the most difficult part is, is dealing with conflict, um, especially in, in today's sort of more generalised, happy world. Everyone expects a workplace to be um, a very, very, very positive environment. There's obviously a lot more laws and regulations now. Um, and a lot of times people struggle with that. They struggle to, to deal with the conflict that arises. It's a natural part of being a human being um, and not letting that overrun the business and overrun the management style. And able to keep continuing leading the business, even though they might have people who they are in, in daily conflict with. It's a, it's a skill that I think every manager should should be taught, um, whether it's, that's through self-learning or if it's through official uh, business training. 
Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. Uh, but before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Tai Nam Yuen? Um, we are we're not going to rest on our laurels. We, we, we're going to assume that at some point we will have a second wave of coronavirus. And fingers crossed it doesn't happen, but we're going to assume that there is going to be another time where we have to go to lockdown. So we're, going to, we're having quite a lot of self-reflection just now about how we dealt with the last level of lockdown and what we can do going forward. Um, and I think an important part of that as well is keeping our staff in the loop and ensuring that as we go forward next time that we don't see the same sort of level of absences or fear that we saw from the first wave. Um, I'd also like to obviously thank all the staff who were here um, for doing the job they did. They did a fantastic job um, and I know there's a lot um, sort of negativity around working in care and things just now, but it's important that they know that they, they worked extremely well and things could have been far, far worse if it wasn't for the effort they put in. Well, Jonathan, I'd like to thank you uh, for appearing on the show today and wish you and the entire team uh, the best of luck over the coming weeks and months ahead. And we'd love to have you back on the show when things get back to some semblance of normalcy. Jonathan, thank you. That was Jonathan Moore, training manager of Tanya Muon. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with our chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. 
What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the 
challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be 
considerably adjusted was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy 
shut down. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely.
Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare. 
mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps 
to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one key key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company, or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.